episode 7 of Theology and Sci-Fi, the podcast. I am your host, Derek V. Trout, and I'm so thankful that you have decided to join me today. I truly appreciate it. In this episode, we go back to the silver screen to examine the sci-fi classic movie, E.T., The Extraterrestrial. But first, a little more about me. I feel as though I'm running out of things to say. I'm not sure I'm really that interesting, but a couple of episodes or so ago, now I told you that I am a pen snob. And I told you as part of being a pen snob, one of the things I like is fountain pens because I like getting ink on my hands. It, it makes me feel like a writer is what I said. And I, I want to feel like a writer because honestly, I've always wanted to be a writer. I've always wanted to be an author. I've always wanted to write things. And I suppose actually I am. I've written seven completed books and started to write at least 25 more. I tried to get one of my books published, but couldn't get an agent or a publisher to agree, so I published it myself on Amazon, did some self-publishing. Yes, you can buy my fantasy book, The Tales of Raishan Rune, The Great Elf Leader, and The Other World Witch. You can buy that right now on Amazon. It's been for sale for several years, actually. And if you do, I can tell tell you that you will find many theological themes within that book. It's the first book of the series. I've actually written the second book. But I'm not done editing it yet. See, I, I am a terrible editor. I'm not kidding you. If you give me a couple of months, I can write you a book. If you give me a couple of years, I still might not have it edited. So if you're an editor or if you know an editor or a literary agent or you know a literary agent and you would like to help me out, I've got some books for you. Uh, I've written three science fiction books and I'm still in the editing phase of all of those. And I've also written two fantasy books, the first book of The Tales of Raishan Rune and the second one. I've also written what I would call two Christian living books, and I went through those books actually with small groups when I was serving at a church in Ohio. But if you want to read two of my short stories, you can go and do that right now. You can go to my personal website, DerekVTrout.com. Yes, that's a thing, DerekVTrout.com. You can go there and you can read either a fantasy story titled The Statues They Walked or a science fiction story titled You Think I'm the Robot? There's also a few blog posts on there from several years ago. It's been a number of years since I've done anything with that website. I keep telling myself I'm going to and never get around to it, and now I'm busy with this. So maybe one of these days I'll get back to that. But anyway, you can go there and you can, can find some of that. You can buy my book on Amazon. You can read my short stories. I hope to do some more writing and publishing, even if it is just self-publishing, and if and when I do, I will let you know. So there you go. You can go and read some of my writings, and I think that certainly you will see some theological themes in all of them, maybe. I mean, sometimes you just write a story because you want to write a story, right? You write a story because you have a story in your mind, or you have a story that you want to tell, and you don't really have any kind of intention or any kind of purpose. But I think even then, even if it's not intentional, there will always be a part of the writer and their beliefs that comes through in the book or the short story or the movie, whatever it is that's being written. So even if it's not intentional, I think some things are there. But if you'd like to read some of my writings, that's how you can do it. And I would appreciate that. So let's press on with the movie and what we'll be looking at today and get into the episode. As you just learned a little bit about me, we'll push on to the episode. And we will be looking today at E.T., the extraterrestrial. E.T. was first released in 1982 and was written by Melissa Matheson and directed by Steven Spielberg. E.T. stars Dee Wallace, Henry Thomas, Peter Coyote, 
Robert McNaughton, and Drew Barrymore as well as an alien. And according to the IMDb, the plot for E.T. is this. A troubled child summons the courage to help a friendly alien escape Earth and return to his home world. We will get into all of that and more in detail as we examine this movie. But to start with, E.T. is rated PG and in my personal opinion has no questionable content in terms of violence or sexual content. But some of the language surprised me. There are some things that I said, oh, I'm not so sure that that's exactly PG. Some things that I did not remember about this. A few curse words such as, such as the S word, but also some inappropriate insults and words. So you've been warned. It's also a little bit creepy at some times. And I know that E.T. has scared small children before. I, I have some stories with that. Uh, not, not me, but some family members. So I won't, I won't say anything there. But I know you can scare E.T. is scary to some small children. So if you have some really young kids, you might want to wait a little bit to share this sci-fi flick with them. So at the time of this recording, uh, E.T. is only available. I could only find it available on the AMC Plus streaming service, which I do not have. So I went old school and bought a DVD for... $6.99 on Amazon. And while I have seen this movie, I don't know, probably eight to 12 times, maybe it's been many years, probably actually literal decades, maybe 20 years or more since I sat down and watched ET in its entirety. So it was interesting. It was fun at times. It was interesting. I, I think it's a good word for it as well to go back and to watch this again and to see some of those scenes and to watch it with different kind of eyes from a different perspective than the last time I saw it, whenever it was. So, so I got some, some new insights and some new things that I've seen for it. Still an enjoyable movie and still one that has a plethora of theological themes in it, as we will see as we go throughout this episode. But right now, before you even watch the movie, there's something that's of the theological significance to discuss. And if you have the same DVD I do, one of the images that's on the, the actual DVD and it's also been on many movie posters before, but it's a very familiar image of E.T.'s finger stretching out. And we only see his arm from about the elbow down, and E.T.'s finger is touching someone else's finger. I presume it is Elliot's finger. And you can only see a little bit more than the wrist on the human hand. So there's E.T.'s finger, and it's reaching out to touch this human finger. And if you are a fan of art, the image here should be familiar to you. Even if you're not really a fan of art, this is such an iconic image. Such a famous image that it should be noticeable to you because it's clearly a reference to and is mimicking that uh, Michelangelo's painting titled The Creation of Adam. You've seen it before, I'm sure, where God is stretching his finger towards Adam. Adam is stretching his finger towards God's and it's called The Creation of Adam. And we see that re re recreated either on the DVD cover or movie poster or, or something. I'm sure you've seen that. So right before we even put the DVD in to watch it, or, or before we even start, there's already some religious imagery that's right there, that's right there on the disc for you. So, and this was undoubtedly intentional. Joseph McBride, who is Spielberg's biographer, told how Universal Pictures was trying to appeal directly to the Christian audience with that movie poster that's copying the creation of Adam painting. That's an interesting choice to me. To copy this painting is an interesting choice, but also to want to appeal to a Christian audience. Why is that? Is it because Universal Pictures thought that it would be, um, th there's a lot of money to be made from the Christian audience? Or, or are there some things in this movie that are Christian themes? 
Why did they want to appeal to that Christian audience? And also, in 1982, maybe was that a more popular or, or, or a more, um, uh, were there more people within that Christian audience to appeal to? So maybe it was just a financial thing. Maybe if you had more Christians then, there's more people to appeal to so that we can get them in and so that we can see, so that they can see this movie so we can get some money. So why, why was that done intentionally? And what was the idea behind that? And if Universal Pictures is doing that, I'm sure the ultimate plan behind that is to get more money, to attract more people in, to get more people to pay for it. So there's obviously, I, I think looking back, you'd probably see there's would numerically be more Christians in America then than now. So maybe it's just a bigger audience to appeal to to get more money, but I'm not exactly sure, but let's dive into looking at this movie and see some theological themes that are within the film. And as we do that, we see that E.T. is a fitting movie to examine here because as Robert K. Johnson writes in his book, Real Spirituality, so he has this book called Real Spirituality, but it's spelled R-E-E-L because the subtitle of the book is Theology and and f- theology and film and dialogue. So it's real, R-E-E-L, like a film real, real spirituality, theology and film and dialogue. And in this book, Robert K. Johnson writes this. Christians have applauded such movies as, and then he lists a number of movies, and one of them is E.T. So he says, Christians have applauded such movies as E.T. for the, the- for the theology they embody. We can learn from these stories, including E.T. We can learn from them. We can learn from these stories more of the story. So when he says we can learn from these stories, there's a, 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 a small s that is there. But when he says we can learn more from these stories, more of the story, story with a capital S. So what he's talking about there is we can look at some of these movies and we can look and see some fiction and we can apply that. Uh, to the story of Jesus. We can actually learn some things by looking at, at these, and, and we can learn more about who Jesus is through even fictional stories because there are some parallels there. So that's what we've been doing here on this podcast, and that's what Robert K. Johnson writes about, why Christians have applauded some of these movies because the story of E.T. ultimately points to the story of Jesus. We see some parallels through that, and we will as we get throughout this podcast. So the movie starts with a spaceship and a clearing in the forest with lots of aliens running around collecting plants. I believe that's what they're doing. And then an owl hoots and all the aliens' chests light up. And one alien looks down into a valley and sees a large city lit up. And then cars pull up. And there are some men in these cars. And who are these men? And what do they want? We don't know yet. E.T.'s chest lights up. So we're going to call E.T. the alien. Uh, that, that we later get to know. That's really the only name that's ever given him. So E.T.'s chest lights up and he's chased by these men while the other aliens are are waiting at the ship. And here is the first time, but not the last time, that I will ask myself, how is E.T. so fast? How can that little alien with virtually no legs, just feet at the bottom of a torso, who slowly waddles everywhere, how can he be so fast? I don't know. Maybe that's E.T.'s greatest miracle. He can be as fast as the Flash when he needs to be. Otherwise, he seems to struggle to move and get around. But he is zipping through these woods and running away from these people in a car. And I'm, uh, how is how is he so fast? I don't know. But he is. But the other aliens have to leave. And E.T., being as fast as he is, is not caught. So he wanders down to the city. 
Now, if you listen to the episode here on Theology and Sci-Fi about 2001, you would know that there was over 20 minutes that passed before a human word was said on screen in 2001. And I noticed a parallel here between that and E.T. because E.T. doesn't go quite that long, but there are over eight minutes that, that pass in this film before a human word is said. There's lots of alien noises and Maybe they're talking and communicating with one another, but we can't tell that. But there are over eight minutes that pass before a human word is said. So E.T. has a way of slowing down the story and has a way of relying on things visually instead of just relying on all these action shots and all this dialogue. It slows down the storytelling. Not as much as 2001, but it's still something that I noticed. And it's still 2001 and E.T. are made it at different times, but it's still kind of coming out of that idea of science fiction where we can slow down things and we can show things and we don't have to be packing every single every single second of a movie with action as expected now. But we cut to a family with a younger brother, Elliot, and his older brother, Michael, and his friends who are playing, I believe, Dungeons and Dragons. I've only played that once, so I'm not 100% sure on it, but I think that's what it is. And I'm pr- that's what they're playing. They're playing Dungeons and Dragons. I wasn't uh, I wasn't sure on that, so I checked in the script. It's listed as Dungeons and Dragons, so I'm going to go with it. But they're sitting around playing a game, and they're drinking Coke and Fresca, and the product placement in E.T. is strong. They have some strong product placement in E.T. There's lots of pro- products that are prominently displayed where you can see their logo, where you can know what it is. This movie's got a lot of that in it. But Elliot is sent outside to get pizza that they ordered and he hears the noise in the shed and he goes and tells his brother and his mom and they go and they find nothing in the shed. But E.T., along with being freakishly fast, also appears to be the hide-and-seek champion of the world because he was in that shed the whole time. Even though they thought he was in there, even though they went in there, they looked around, they couldn't find him, they leave, and all of a sudden he just pokes his head out from something and somewhere where I think they probably should have seen him, but they don't, so... Perhaps E.T. is also the Flash when needed and the hide-and-seek champion of the world. Um, but E.T., he um, is able to stay there without getting caught. And then Elliot thinks that he hears something again and goes in his backyard and eventually finds E.T. in a cornfield that's behind his house, and they yell and scream at each other, and then E.T. runs away. Then Elliot gets some Reese's Pieces, again, some more product placement, and he goes searching for the alien. He sees someone out in the forest that we assume is also searching for E.T. But the hide-and-seek champion of the world, he does it again. He's hiding nearby, and yet no one finds him. There's multiple people in the woods looking for this alien. He's just hiding nearby. No one sees him, and he's not caught again. Elliot tells his family at dinner what he saw and uh, tells them about E.T., but no one believes him. No one believes that he actually saw an alien. But why not? Why would no one believe him? Because seeing something like that is unbelievable. Seeing something that has defied explanation and something that has such a great and significant understanding and impact on people's view of the world is hard to believe. It's hard to believe. But Elliot and his brother and his mom, and her name is Mary, they get into an argument about this. And after Elliot gives an inappropriate insult to his brother, Mary just laughs. What, what Elliot does, uh, I'm going to try to say this in, in a PG way that I can. Elliot says, calls his brother a male appendage breath, is what he says. I'm sure you can figure out what that is. And 
And Elliot's mom just laughs and tells him to sit down. Uh, I can tell you if that had happened in my house at that time, I don't think my mom just would have laughed and told me to sit down. I think there would have been some, a very different uh, response on her part. But she just chuckles and kind of laughs it off and tells Elliot to sit down and doesn't think it's a big deal. But then Elliot says, dad would believe me. And we're given here the first indication of what is going on with Elliot's mom and dad. We eventually find out that his dad is in Mexico with a girl named Sally, and Mary, the mom, is very upset about this as she says he doesn't even like Mexico. I feel like at one point in the movie, Mary said that she was separated from her husband. Maybe not. I don't remember. I did not make a note of that in my, my journal. But in the script, Mary is referred to as being divorced. So, and, and that seems to be a big issue for a number of people in reading about E.T. is is the divorce and the impact that it has on Elliot. So let's pause here and talk a little bit about divorce. Is divorce okay? Is it something that should be allowed to happen? What does the Bible say about divorce? Well, I'm glad you asked. Something very interesting happens with divorce in the Bible. To see this, let's look at Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 11. Some Pharisees came to Jesus. In order to test him, they said, Does the law allow a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Jesus answered, Haven't you read at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And God said, Because of this, a man should leave his father and mother and be joined together with his wife, and the two will be one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, humans must not pull apart what God has put together. The Pharisees said to him, Then why did Moses command us to give a divorce certificate and divorce her? Jesus replied, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives because your hearts are unyielding. But it wasn't that way from the beginning. I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If that's the way things are between a man and his wife, then it's better to not marry. And he replied, not everyone can accept this teaching, but only those who have received the ability to accept it. So what is going on here? First, when Jesus is asked if the law commands a man to divorce his wife for any reason, we need to pause and look at why this question, why this question specifically, why would it be asked to Jesus and why would it be asked in this way? So we look at some historical context. There were two different schools of thought on divorce amongst the Jews during this time. And remember, the Pharisees, those who are asking the question is Jesus, they are Jewish. They would be a part of that. So one school of thought during that time for the Jewish people was known as, they were called the Shammai, S-H-A-M-M-I, the Shammai. They argued that the law allowed one to divorce only if a wife was unfaithful. So if your wife was, on, was sexually unfaithful, you would be allowed to divorce her. The other, there's another side though, the Hillel. And they said that a man can divorce his wife for any reason. For any reason, even if she burns his toast. I'm not kidding. Even if she burns his toast, if he decides to, then he can divorce her. A, a later rabbi also actually added to that that a man could divorce his wife if he met someone who was more attractive. So guys out there, if you found someone who is more attractive, according to the Hillel side, you would be able to divorce your wife. That would be justifiable grounds. Now, during this time, women were not allowed to divorce their husbands. That's just the way it was culturally. Men could divorce their wives. Wives were not able 
to divorce their husbands. So both the Shammai and the Hillel, they were looking at the same passage of Scripture regarding the law. They were just interpreting it differently. That passage is Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, which says this, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land of the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. What is important for our discussion here is in Deuteronomy 24.1. That's really what's important here. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and writes her a divorce certificate and continues from there. Well, what this is really doing, all of this between the Shammai and the Hillel, what it really comes down to, what it really focuses on is just one, one word. That word here that is translated as indecent. If you find something indecent about her. Now, other translations use words like inappropriate or if there is some indecency found within her. The Hebrew word here, erva, actually refers to nakedness. Actually, it specifically refers to the nakedness of female genitalia. So there's an implication in here of a naked shamefulness of that of an exposure of that part of the anatomy. So it's with the implication here of marital unfaithfulness or adultery that there has been a a shameful exposing of your body to another man. You have committed some kind of adultery here. So this word is associated with being shamed or being exposed or also with committing adultery that that you would have that within there within this word erva. So the Shammai were translating this word in the meaning of Deuteronomy 24, 1, to mean sexual unfaithfulness. So if a, if a man marries a woman who uh, it becomes displeasing to him because he finds that she has been sexually unfaithful and decency, if he has found something indecent and what that word would mean, then he can write her a, or a certificate of divorce. The Hillel were translating this word in the meaning in Deuteronomy 24.1 to mean any kind of indiscretion, any kind of a, a thing that the husband would look at and, and say is undesirable. Let's say that, that I don't like this indiscretion that you've done. I don't like that you've burnt my toast, so I'm going to get a divorce. So whatever kind of indiscretion would be there would be determined by the husband for the ground of divorce. Now, there is a great and significant disagreement about the translation of this passage and what it means with the Hillel and with the Shammai and what is allowed for divorce and what is not. And it has a lot of actual real-world consequences for people, for a whole lot of people. So who is right? Are the Shammai who say only divorce because of adultery is right? Or is it the Hillel who say, men, divorce your wives forever? reason you want? Well, Jesus actually answers this question. Is it lawful to divorce for any reason? Is it lawful to divorce for any reason? Jesus answers this question by looking back to God's original intended plan. Again, Matthew 19 verses 4 through 6. Jesus answered, 
Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? We see that in Genesis one twenty seven, And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's Genesis 2.24. So they are no longer one. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. That was God's original plan. That is what God originally intended. Now, I've talked about this before, but the more I talk about it and the more I think about it, the more I really like the idea that what Jesus does for us, what Jesus wants for us is to bring us back to what God originally intended. He's trying to restore that which is broken by bringing it back to how things were originally supposed to be before the fall happens and sin enters the world. Jesus wants to take us back to how God intended the world to be. He takes us back to how God intended us to be. And that is what Jesus answers. How things are supposed to be because that's the way God created them to be before the fall. So we look at the things, how, how things are supposed to to be. And if we are living how God originally wanted us to live, how God originally intended us to live, if we are in perfect relationship with him, if we are without sin, then there is no need. There's no reason for divorce. There would be no adultery or abuse or hurt if we are living in a world without sin. And that was God's intention. But we all know that we are not living in the world God intended us to live in because of the fall, because of sin. And we've talked about that before, so I'll just move on. But but, but once that fall happens, we're no longer living in the world as God intended for us. So since we're not living in the world as God intended, the Pharisees have a follow-up question. Because sure, that's the way God meant it to be for, for you to be married and not commit adultery or not have, have hurt or abuse. That's the way God intended it, but that's not the world we're living in. So they have a follow-up question. Matthew 19, verses 7 through 8. The Pharisees said to Jesus, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And then Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. This is really interesting. From the beginning, divorce was never a part of the plan, but it was allowed in the law of Moses. Well, why? Because of the hardness of your hearts. What does that mean? Well, to understand that, let's look at the question the Pharisees ask again and look at Jesus' response. The Pharisees ask, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? But Jesus' answer is, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Did you notice that difference? The Pharisees ask why Moses commanded a divorce. But Jesus answers that Moses allowed a divorce. Jesus, he shifts the verb commanded to allow. Moses allowed divorce because people's hearts had become hardened. It was as if Jesus had said, said this, basically, here's the ideal. Here's how things should be. And here's the allow, but here's the allowance of God when human sinfulness and hardness of heart has made the ideal unattainable. Here's the ideal. But here is the allowance of God when human sinfulness and hardness of heart has made the ideal unobtainable. The Israelites saw other places and other cultures and other things, and they always wanted to be like them. And they didn't have the same standards of marriage and divorce and all those kinds of things. So they look around and decide that they might want some things that other people have too. And so God allows it. 
but did not allow, but God does not allow divorce for anything and everything. Jesus comes down siding with the Shammai who say that only divorce should be because of adultery. Matthew 19, 9. Jesus says, I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except for sexual unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. In saying this, Jesus also does something significant and important and different. Jesus, being opposed to allowing men to divorce at any time for any reason, he is standing up for married women because he's not going to allow their husbands to do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want it to in terms of divorce. Now, culturally during this time, it was difficult for a woman to make a living if she were not married. Unmarried or divorced women had limited economic opportunities, and a divorced woman might be considered by some to be less appealing than a woman who had never been married. So if you have a divorced woman and she would be culturally less appealing than a woman who had never been married, it might be difficult for a woman to survive after being divorced. But Jesus stands up in defense of the married woman and tells husbands, no, don't just divorce them and leave them high and dry because they burnt your toast. No, that's not right. That's not what you signed up for. That's not the, that's not the vows that you made. But Jesus is saying, don't just do this for any reason. So what Jesus is doing is what he always does. He is standing up. He's standing up for people who can't really stand up for themselves. And here he is standing up for women. He's coming down and saying, don't just divorce your wife for any reason that you want. Because if you do that, then it could literally literally be making it so that it's hard for your wife, your your ex-wife now to survive. She might have to do some really terrible things to be able to survive now within this culture because you're no longer there to take care of her and to support her and be with her. So Jesus is standing up for the woman. Jesus allows for divorce, though, if a spouse has been unfaithful. He does allow for that, but is there any other reason? Is there any other reasons that it is justifiable to get a divorce. I think there's only one other category that I could argue would be acceptable, no questions asked, acceptable for divorce. And that is if there is abuse taking place. If there is a marriage where there is physical or sexual or mental or emotional abuse that is purposefully and consistently and constantly happening, I understand why one would want to get divorced. Even if those things happen once, Understand me here. Even if those things happen once, if there is physical or sexual or mental or emotional abuse that happens once, I understand why you'd want to get a divorce. And it would be hard for me to make an argument why you should not divorce. As a matter of fact, I think I would look at people and argue that it may be best to do that if if there's not if there's not going to be any kind of of any kind of reconciliation or change or anything like that. But but even if those things happen once, I can understand. I can understand why there would want to be a divorce. So in the cases of abuse and adultery, yes, divorce may be the best and appropriate option, especially if there's nothing that's happening to change or if there's no kind of reconciliation or it's a pattern, all those kinds of things. Absolutely. I think that those are understandable grounds for divorce, even if those things happen once. Abuse or adultery, if those happen once, I understand why there may need to be divorce. But most divorces happen for different reasons than abuse or unfaithfulness. According to itsovereasy.com, various studies list these here as the top 10 reasons 
for divorce. Number one, conflict, arguing. There's been an irreconcilable breakdown in the relationship. So we don't get along anymore. We have some conflict. We're arguing. Let's just end this thing. That's a hard, that's hard grounds for divorce. Number two, lack of commitment. I'm not exactly sure what that means or what a commitment is or what you're committed to or lack thereof, but that's number two. Number three, infidelity, extramarital affairs. So number three, one of those justifiable reasons comes in at number three. Number four, there's distance in the relationship, meaning there's a lack of physical intimacy. So that's number four. Number five, communication problems between partners. We just don't communicate well, so let's get a divorce. Okay. Number six, domestic violence, verbal, physical, or emotional, or sexual abuse by a partner. Again, understandable and justifiable means grounds for a divorce. Number seven, realization that one spouse has different values or morals. I'm sorry, but if you are married to somebody, unless they do a complete change. Now, there has been some people I know who have done like 180 changes in their beliefs, just been a complete break. And there's been some, there's one case that I know in this where somebody had like a walking faithfully, going to church, claiming to be a Christian. And then all of a sudden one, one morning wakes up and is like, nope, I don't believe in God anymore. Well, I'm not going to worship God anymore, but instead I'm going to start worshiping like the devil. I know of that happening once. That's kind of a, a different thing there. And I don't think that's the norm. I think this one is referring to you just come to realize that your spouse and you have different values, that you've never really had the same morals. So you just might as well break it off. Like you should know the values and morals of your spouse before you marry them. You should know those things. Number eight is substance abuse or alcohol addiction. That's a, a difficult one too, I think. Um, Man, in the right situation, I can understand how that would be a dangerous spot to be in and maybe grounds for a justifiable divorce if somebody is addicted to those things and it's causing them to do some of those other things like domestic violence or affairs and those kinds of things. So so drug and alcohol abuse can you lead to different things, but um, that could be a tricky one depending on the situation. I don't think there are necessarily right answers to all of these things. I think maybe that's one of the things the church has been wrong about on divorce for a while. So we're just going to look at, well, if this happens and you can get divorced, no questions asked. If it doesn't happen, then you have to say married, no questions asked. I don't think that's really that easy. And I think some of these are some gray area and there's some things that make me say, ooh, I don't know. I don't know if there's a, a spouse that has substance abuse or is addicted to alcohol or, or different things or drug use, could there be some kind of justifiable grounds for divorce? Perhaps. It just depends on the situation. Like, I don't think all these things were really that easy, which is why we're having a conversation here now. Number nine is the absence of romantic intimacy or the absence of love. So you just don't love each other anymore. Number 10, one partner is not carrying their weight in the marriage. I don't know what that is, but it sounds a lot like the Hillel who are saying, you can just, any excuse you want can be grounds for a divorce. You're not carrying your weight in your marriage. You're not carrying your weight in our marriage because you burnt my toast. So I want a divorce. It sounds ridiculous, but that's kind of along those lines here of who determines what that weight is and what that means. And so there are a few of these that I can get on board with kind of undoubtedly, obviously number three, infidelity, and number six, domestic violence, number eight, with a substance abuse or addiction. 
calls into some questions for me too, but I can tell you that if you are getting a divorce because you cannot communicate well with your spouse, why don't you try to improve communication first? Why don't, why don't you try some, some change for yourself and hopefully your spouse can try to change and to reconcile and to remain faithful to those vows that you have made. But so many times, I think what we see here is people run into bumps in the roads, they run into conflicts, they, things are more difficult than they thought, and it's not as easy, and it's not always rainbows and roses and whatever. So they just say, well, you know what? This is difficult. I'm just going to quit. I don't think that's the right solution there. Also to look and see, you know, have you sought the counsel of friends or a pastor or even a professional counselor? Marriage is great, personally, I think. I think it's great. Uh, I'm a big fan of being married to my wife, and I like marriage. Sometimes it can be hard, but the great outweighs the hard, or at least it should. That's God's original plan. That's God's original intention. And when the the hard starts to outweigh the great, maybe there's some of those things that are going on that may be reasons for divorce if there's infidelity or abuse. Or maybe it's just time to go and seek the counsel of help and of friends or, or a pastor or a professional counselor. But also what I want to say here is that what if you have been divorced? And what if you have been divorced for a reason that's other than adultery or abuse? First of all, I want you to know that there is forgiveness and restitution that is available to you through Jesus. Being divorced doesn't make you lesser. It doesn't make you terrible. It doesn't make you a horrible person. Being divorced doesn't make you something like damaged goods. Of, of course not. God still loves you. God still cares for you. God still wants what is best for you. And you can still come to right relationship with him. So there is forgiveness and there is hope and there is restitution for that. And I want you to know that. And I believe that can happen. Or maybe you've had a spouse that left and left you and they wanted a divorce, but, but you didn't. That happens too, right? There's things that happen here where maybe you want to hold on to that marriage, but your spouse decided they did it and they left. And I want you to know when that happens too, that God hasn't left you though. He, he, he hasn't abandoned you. He's still with you and he doesn't look at you as any less. There are some things that are out of our control. And if you're trying all you can do to save that and your spouse is not, then those things happen sometimes. And those are difficult times as well. But if you are married, what I encourage you to do is to remain faithful to those wedding vows that you made. And if you, if you find you and your spouse in a difficult situation or circumstance, seek help with friends or pastoral counseling or professional counseling. That's okay. Your marriage is worth that. Your marriage is worth working on and it's worth fighting for. Because divorce is difficult. It is so difficult, and it's especially difficult on children. And I think that we get a little bit of a glimpse of that in E.T. when we look at Elliot. Speaking of E.T. and Elliot, that's why we're here. So I think looking at those reasons for divorce and kind of understanding that and looking at really some of the theology behind divorce, because that's what we're doing here is looking at theology, and everything is theology. Our theology matters for everything, even here with divorce. So remain faithful to your spouse and to those wedding vows that you've committed. Work on your marriage if you need to, but know that if you've been divorced, there can be forgiveness if, if there's been some things that have happened in there, and there can be restitution, and there can be wholeness that you can find 
in a relationship with Jesus. And just because you're divorced doesn't mean that you're lesser or terrible, doesn't mean any of those things. And God still loves you. He's still there. And being divorced does not mean that you cannot enter into a right relationship with him. So I just wanted to encourage you, if you are, to to know that, that there can be wholeness. There can be right relationship that's found through Jesus, no matter what you've done in your past. But let's get back to the movie. And Elliot's mom, Elliot's mom tells him, if he ever sees that thing again, referring to E.T., if you, if you ever see that thing again, don't touch it. And she'll call someone to come and take it away. And Elliot responds, but they'll give it to a laboratory or do experiments on it or something. It's a very dark outlook for Elliot. And why would he think that? Why, why would he think that they're going to come and take this thing away and put it in some laboratory or do experiments on it or something like that? Is it because this is so other or so different from other people? Is there some kind of fear of the other type situation here that Elliot is thinking about? Well, Elliot's mom is upset about her husband or ex-husband being in Mexico with another woman and is still upset about what Elliot has said. And, and Michael then says to Elliot, grow up. Think about how other people feel for a change. And we arrive again at empathy. Grow up. Think about how other people feel for a change. And that's the, the start of empathy. You're starting to think about how other people feel and to put yourself in their situation and to be able to experience what they're experiencing. But we have discussed empathy in depth, especially in our episode on Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? So if you want to know more about empathy, we cover it in depth there, so we aren't going to go into it much here, but I thought that was worth mentioning. Next, Elliot is in his yard at night, and E.T. returns and gives Elliot some of the Reese's Pieces. Then Elliot gets E.T. to come into his house, again with a trail of the Reese's Pieces. The two have accepted each other. Elliot has accepted E.T., and in return, E.T. has accepted Elliot. There's a beautiful example here of, how, of the acceptance that we should have for those who are different than us. As Christians, we should be people who accept anyone and everyone into God's family. What I mean by that is when people come to Jesus and when they confess their sins and when they repent and when they have a true genuine desire to enter into right relationship with God, no matter who they are, no matter what they look like, no matter where they've been, no matter what they've done in the past, we should accept them into God's family. People who look different than us, who are different from different places, everyone everywhere is, accept, is accepted into God's family when they place their faith in Jesus and come to him, repent of their sins and accept him as Lord and Savior. And when they do that, we as God's people are called to accept them into God's family as well. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, we read this. Therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, I encourage you to live as people worthy of the calling you have received from God. Conduct yourselves with all humility, gentleness, and patience. Accept each other with love. And make an effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit with the peace that ties you together. Accept each other with love. In Romans 14.1, we read this. Welcome the person who is weak in faith but not in order to argue about differences of, of opinion. So we are to welcome, or we to, are to accept the person who is weak in faith. We're to accept them into God's family and into that, into our local church, into whatever it may be, because that's how we strengthen and build up each other. And then Romans fifteen seven, 
Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Accept one another then. Accept one another within the church just as Christ has accepted you in order to bring praise to God. E.T. is very different than Elliot. And Elliot is very different than E.T. And yet, they accept each other. We need to do that with all brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, again, that doesn't mean that we accept sin. That doesn't mean that we don't hold the people accountable for the actions and attitudes and thoughts in their life. What it does mean is that we accept everyone into the family of Christ and welcome them as brothers and sisters. From the upstanding citizen to the criminal, from families to single parents to rich or poor, whatever it may be, whatever anyone may have done in the past, we need to accept them into the family of God and treat them as brothers and sisters in Christ when they come to faith in Jesus. Again, that doesn't mean that we are welcoming of sin and people who are living in sin and people who want those kinds of things. That's not what we're to be accepting of, not to be accepting of that kind of lifestyle. But what we are to be accepting of is people who have repented of that, who have a true and genuine desire to live in a relationship with Jesus and to become part of God's family. We are to accept them into God's family. This is what Elliot does with E.T. He truly accepts this little alien into his family. We see an example of this from Jesus in several places, actually. But let's look at one specific example in Luke 19, where we read about Jesus' interactions with a man named Zacchaeus. So Jesus is passing through Jericho, and there's a man there whose name is Zacchaeus, and he was a wealthy tax collector. Now, tax collectors during this time were often rich because they charge people extra and then pocket it. So, for example, if the taxes were 10%, the tax collectors might charge people 12%. And then they would keep that extra, too, for themselves. And people would say, well, I'm not going to give you any extra. I'm only supposed to pay 10%. But the tax collector would say, well, I'm going to get my extra 2%. So if you give me 10%, I'm going to go tell the government you only gave me 8%. And then they're going to be in trouble with the Roman government. And would you rather be in trouble with the Roman government or just give me an extra 2%? So tax collectors, they... They had this great get-rich scheme for themselves, and it worked really well for them. But as you can imagine, it made a lot of enemies from the people that they were collecting the taxes from. It often actually resulted in those that are collecting that those they were collecting the taxes from ended up hating them. They they really didn't like them. Tax collectors were not a group of people that were well liked during this time. So Jesus is going through Jericho, and by now people knew who he was. They'd heard about the miracles and the preaching that he had done, and they wanted to see it or maybe even experience a miracle for themselves. So a crowd was there following Jesus to see what he was going to do and to hear what he was going to teach, but Zacchaeus had a problem. He was short. You might know that song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He's very short, apparently, because he couldn't see over the crowd to look at Jesus. But he wanted to. He knew the stories. He knew what people had said about Jesus. And he wanted to see for himself, is this true? So he runs ahead of the crowd and climbs a tree so that he can see Jesus. When Jesus gets to the tree, he stops, looks up, and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I must stay in your home today. Immediately, Zacchaeus gets down from the tree and happily welcomed Jesus into his house. But the people of the crowd start to complain. They start to murmur. They start to grumble. He has gone to, the, to be the guests of a sinner, the crowd, the crowd said. 
And they were upset about it. They didn't understand how could Jesus accept a man like Zacchaeus. But he does. He actually seems to accept Zacchaeus before he repents. Zacchaeus actually eventually does repent, but but Jesus go, asks to go to his house. He doesn't go, hey, Zacchaeus, if you come down and repent, I'll come to your house. No, 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 no. Jesus says, I'm going to your house. And and Jesus accepts him and goes to his house and shares a meal with, a, with him. And Jesus accepts Zacchaeus by asking him, can I come over to your house? What, what was that basically what that says to someone is I accept you more than having them come over to your house for a meal or to sleep over for a few days. What, what's more welcoming than that to invite someone over to your house, to share a meal with them, to house them for a couple of days. How much more welcoming could you get? How much more accepting could you get from someone? So Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus's house, but Zacchaeus agrees. He's still a sinner at that point. He's still a tax collector. He's still cheated from people, and he's not repented. But Jesus accepts us while we are still sinners, right? Jesus accepts us while we are still sinners. Well, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Because see, the problem, what the thing is, when we are sinners, when we come to Jesus and when we pray that prayer of repentance and accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, we can come to him, but we still have some sin problem that needs to get taken care of because there's no other way to take care of the problem of sin other than through Jesus. There's no other way to take care of that. So you can't take care of your problem of sin before you come to know Jesus. The problem of sin gets taken care of after you come to know Jesus. Yes, we can repent. Yes, we ask for forgiveness. We, we, we can experience that salvation. We can experience that, but but we still are still have some sin issues to deal with because that's just the start of our relationship with Jesus. It's just the start of our relationship with the one who can solve our sin problem. So Jesus offers acceptance to all, from prostitutes to religious leaders, from fishermen to tax collectors. He's willing to accept them all into his family and allow them all to become heirs in salvation. See, sometimes we followers of Jesus, we get it backwards. We only expect the good people to be in church. We only expect the people who are already following Jesus to be in church. We expect the, the people who, who have cleaned up their lives and who've got it all figured out. We, we look at those people and think, ah, once that happens, now we can accept them into our local church. And, and again, understand me, I'm not saying that we have to accept everything that everyone does. We certainly shouldn't be people who... We shouldn't be accepting of people who are living in regular, cyclical, unrepented sin. We shouldn't be putting those people in positions of leadership and appointing them as teachers in our churches. But but there should be a spot on our pews for them. We should still be accepting them into the, into the fellowship on Sunday morning or for a midweek Bible study. And we should be as welcoming and accepting as possible. And why? Because they need Jesus. We should eat with them. We should spend time with them. We should get to know them. We should be accepting towards them within our Christian fellowship, just as Jesus was accepting of Zacchaeus before Zacchaeus comes and repents. See, we come and we get to know people and we develop a relationship with them. And that's how really they can grow in Christ and get to know who Jesus really is if they get to know who we are because we are Christ's representatives. So we need to accept others into the family of God just as Jesus has accepted you into his family. 
We need to be accepting of sinners into our churches and to spend time with them and to eat with them and share with them who the Lord is so they can get to know him and can truly become a part of God's family so we accept them into that. But back to the movie, and Elliot fakes being sick so he can stay at home with E.T., and he tries to teach E.T. to talk, and we see some more product placement here with Coke and Pez and Elliot playing with Star Wars action figures. The product placement is strong in this one. But Michael comes home, and Elliot makes him promise not to tell anyone, and then he shows Michael and Gertie, who's his little sister, he shows his older brother and little sister E.T. and everyone screams, but they still manage to hide E.T. from Elliot's mom, even though they're all screaming and kind of acting crazy. And then Elliot and Gertie have this exchange. Elliot says, you're not going to tell, are you? Even mom? And Gertie says, why not? Then Elliot says, because uh, grown-ups can't see him. Only kids can see him. For me, this brought to mind Luke 18, 1 through 5, which says this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then he called a little, a little child over to sit among the disciples and said, I assure you that if you don't turn your lives around and become like this little child, you will definitely not enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who humble themselves like this little child will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Now before we dive into what this means and the significance of it, sometimes this passage and similar passages in the other gospel accounts have this idea within them. Sometimes people say they look at this and they come to the conclusion that we need to have what's called a childlike faith. However, the term childlike faith is actually never found in the Bible. Nowhere that I've found it. Nowhere that I've seen that. The, the term childlike faith gets a bad rap for many, especially those outside the church. Um, they, don't, they don't want to be very childlike in their thinking or very childlike in their faith because it's often understood to mean that we don't use logic or we don't use reason or we don't ask questions about things. We just have to have a simple faith and believe no matter what. Well, I would disagree with that. As Christians, we do not have blind faith or simple faith. We've talked about this before, but we have a faith where God, where we use reason and logic and science and experience to know that God has proved himself over and over and over again, and that our faith is reliable, real, and true. So what does Jesus mean in Matthew 18 when he tells his disciples, I assure you that if you don't turn your lives around and become like this little child, you will definitely not enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who humble themselves like this little child will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean that we have to become like this little child? Who, who is this child? We, we don't know who this child is, actually. So Jesus isn't talking about one specific child, but he's talking about children in general, not one child specifically. And to understand this passage, we need to do what we've already done and what we should do whenever we look at passages of Scripture, and that's turn to look back at the historical context in which this passage was written. So during Jesus' time, there was not a high value that was placed on children. The most powerless members of society were children. In most ancient societies, 
When your age increased, so did your social status and authority. So the older you got, the more social responsibility, the more social respect and status and authority you got. So what Jesus is telling his disciples is is that they need to humble themselves and be willing to be considered the least. They need to be willing to give up power and position and status. If they want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, if they want to inherit the kingdom of heaven, they need to be willing to humble themselves, to consider the needs of others more important than your own needs. So when Jesus is telling his disciples to become like this this little child, to be humble like this little child, that's what he's telling them. That they need to be willing to give up all this They need to be willing to give up power, position, status, fame, wealth, money. They need to give up all those things and humble themselves. Because we know that the first will be last and the last will be first. We know that Jesus wants us to consider the interests of others before we consider our own. And this passage has to do with humility and becoming the same status as a child in the ancient world. I'm not sure how well this translates to today in terms of humility and children. I'm not sure how that would work for kids in 2022. It depends on the child and where you are in the world, I suppose. But, 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 but that's what Jesus means. He, he's telling his, his disciples to become humble like children, to be willing to give up all these things that society says are important. Don't chase after those things. Don't chase after the fame and wealth and authority and power. Don't chase after that, but give those things up. Be willing to become a servant. Be humble. Consider others before others' needs before you take care of your own. You need to be willing to be considered the lowest. And that's what makes people truly great in the kingdom of God. So that's what Jesus means there when he tells them that they they need to become like this child. It has to do with humility, not a a simple childlike never questioning faith. That's not what that means. It has to do with being humble, being willing to lower yourself. Back to the movie and the three children agree not to tell about E.T., but there are still some people looking for this alien. Who are these people? How do they know that the alien ship was in the clearing in the forest? And what do they want with E.T.? We don't know, but they're looking for him. The children continue to interact with E.T. and show him a globe and show him where they live in California. And they ask E.T., where is he from? And he points to the sky. Here's where I made the first note in my journal about E.T. being a Christ figure. Where has E.T. come from? The sky or the, the heavens, if you will. Where is it that Jesus came from? Well, in John 3, Jesus is telling a man named Nicodemus, who is one of the Pharisees, that you have to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. But Nicodemus is confused by this. And he he asks, how can someone enter their mother's womb to be born again? That doesn't make much sense. But Jesus explains that he's not talking about a, a, a physical, literal rebirth. That is not what Jesus is talking about. But what he's talking about is a spiritual rebirth. So when we talk about people being born-again Christians, what, that, that's what we're referring to in that born-again, is that our spirit, we have a spiritual rebirth where we are made into a new creature, into a new person, and the old has gone. 
But Nicodemus asks, how can this be? How can someone be spiritually reborn? And here is Jesus' response in John 3, verses 10 through 15. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, that is, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The Son of Man, of course, is a title that Jesus uses to refer to himself, and it comes from the Old Testament, and it's it's a re- the Son of Man is referring to the Messiah, so that, that that's what that means. But I feel like I needed to give that context for verse 13 and why Jesus is telling Nicodemus that no one has ascended into heaven except for the one who descended from heaven, that is the Son of Man, Jesus himself. So where is Jesus from? The sky, metaphorically. He has descended from heaven to come to earth, just as E.T. has descended from the sky and is now on earth. Their descent, though, is quite different. E.T. has taken a spaceship, and Jesus has no need to travel on a physical craft to get to earth. I actually thought this was kind of a weak point of connecting E.T. to being a Christ figure, and wondered if it was worth mentioning or not. But then I read in the book Faith and Film, Theological Themes at the Cinema by Brian P. Stone. And in that book, he writes this, that there are so so obvious are the parallels between the life of Christ and that of E.T. that it is not surprising that E.T., the short, lovable alien who is accidentally stranded on Earth, should so frequently be considered as a Christ figure by viewers and critics. E.T., for example, comes to Earth from the heavens. Stone says more about the parallels, and I'll get to them into the moment into a moment, but this is why I found this worth mentioning this parallel, even though I'm not sure it's a great parallel, as I said, because of how E.T. comes from the sky or the quote unquote heavens. I don't think the sky is a good representation of where heaven is. I don't think you can just point up and be like heaven's up there. But also um because of how different E.T. and Jesus come from the heavens. Uh, I, I don't I don't think it's a great parallel. I'm, I'm not even sure that it's really meant to be a parallel, or I think it might even be a bit of a stretch to make that, but but Stone clearly thinks that that is one of the um, one of the parallels or one of the things that makes E.T. a Christ figure. So he continues on here saying that about the parallels between E.T. and Jesus, Stone writes, E.T., for example, comes to earth from the heavens. Though wise... E.T. is wise? Anyways. Though wise and powerful, he first appears to children and is accepted by them. I'm not sure how this is a parallel to Jesus. Does Jesus first appear to children? I don't think so. I mean, we've already talked about acceptance, but does he first appear to children to be accepted? I I don't know. We continue with Stone's quote, though. He is hunted down by the establishment. Hunted. I'm not sure hunted is the right word here for what happens with E.T. or even Jesus. Is Jesus hunted down? I mean, they know where he's. Sorry, I'll try to stop. Maybe. 
But Stone continues. E.T. performs healings and miracles. He dies, is resurrected, and then ascends into the heavens as his earthling friends look upward, gazing into the sky. Again, I'm not sure all of those are great parallels, but we'll talk about them as we continue through this episode. So back to the movie, and the children show E.T. a solar system in a book, and then E.T. makes... I thought it was fruit at first, but then looking at it again, I think just... I think there are just some ball, kind of balls in the room that E.T. makes elevate in the air and spin around like it's a solar system. And then E.T. brings some dead flowers back to life. So in this sequence in the movie, we see E.T. doing some things that are supernatural. He's doing some things that should not, that, that, that cannot be done. Some things that I think could be classified as miracles. Is it a miracle, though, to have something elevate in the air, or is that just supernatural? Or is there a difference? What is a miracle? What is the definition of a miracle? Well, I would define a miracle as God going beyond the framework of general providence and interrupting the regular pattern of existence. Let me say that again. A miracle is God going beyond the framework of general providence and interrupting the regular pattern of existence. Notice the first word in that definition, God. God is the only one who can do miracles. You and I do not have the ability to perform miracles on our own, but God can work through people to perform miracles, but it's still God who is doing the work, not the people. And miracles are God's work. It's when God is at work. So a miracle is when God goes beyond the framework of general providence. Well, let's stop there with providence. We've talked about this before, but in case you didn't catch that episode, what is meant by general providence is the normal way in which God interacts with the world. In general providence, God preserves all things in being. God is continually maintaining and perpetuating and upholding creation with things like the laws of nature or thermodynamics or gravity, etc. Those kinds of things. General providence is God holding creation together so that everything is working the way that it normally works. The way that we observe things to work. The way that we can scientifically say see that the, the things consistently work. Now, there's more to general providence and how God interacts with creation, but talking about just how God uh, maintains and perpetuates and upholds creation with things like the laws of nature, thermodynamics, gravity, etc., to make things so that they are the way that things normally work, that's really the, what we need to talk about specifically with general providence to, when we're looking here at our discussion on miracles. So a miracle is when God goes beyond the framework of that kind of general providence and interrupts the regular pattern of existence. So E.T. making the balls levitate into a solar system or bringing the dead flowers back to life would be miracles. They are going beyond the normal framework and pattern of existence. And we see that is yet another way that E.T. is a Christ figure. So that one checks out. Back to the movie, and Elliot's mom thinks she hears something, so she goes to look at to look, and E.T. is hiding amongst a pile of stuffed animals. His face is right there. She's looking across them all, and yet she still doesn't notice there's an alien living in her house. 
And then we see something strange. Something that is weird and something that I'm not sure I completely understand. Elliot is at school and E.T. is at Elliot's house and E.T. E.T. drinks some beer. I think it is. I think it's beer that he's drinking and he, he gets drunk. And as E.T. drinks beer and gets more and more drunk, Elliot becomes drunk too. Even though Elliot's at school and E.T. is at his house. So Elliot, he's acting drunk, he's stumbling, he's running into things. But why is Elliot affected in this way? What is the deal with the symbiotic connection or relationship between E.T. and Elliot? Also, as I've been preparing for this podcast, it has it, it dawned on me just how similar E.T. and Elliot are even in name. That must have been intentional. It had to have been. So it's not something that I noticed to begin with, but after typing out E.T. and Elliot for about the hundredth time right next to each other, I'm like, these look so similar. It finally dawned on me. It took a while. It dawned on me that like E.T., Elliot, E.T., Elliot. E. So even like the, you know, Elliot starts with an E, ends with a T, E.T. So there's even, even in their name, there's some kind of a connection between these two. But what is, why? Why is this connection there? And what does it even mean? Well, then E.T. falls down and Elliot falls down. And the more E.T. drinks, the more drunk Elliot gets. But why? What is up with this and why is it happening? And at school, Elliot's class is dissecting frogs and they're chloroforming their frogs into dissecting them while they're still alive? Or have they just died? I, I, I don't know. I think they would still be alive and... The teacher says something about when they take the heart out, it will still be beating. Is this a thing that really happened? Is this what dissections used to be like? It certainly was not that way when I was in school. Like we would get stuff in formaldehyde. We would get stuff that was already dead. But here they're dropping chloroform in, in with a frog and covering up the glass container that he's in so that he'll pass out. So then they can dissect him while he's like, man, is that the way dissections really used to be? Was not that way for me. But E.T., is watching a movie at Elliot's house and Elliot is reenacting the scene from the movie at school that E.T. is watching at his house. It's weird. It's kind of strange. And I don't really understand why it's happening. Gertie and Mary come home and Mary still doesn't notice E.T. even though she hits him with the fridge door. She opens the fridge door, hits Elliot, he falls down. But she still doesn't notice. Then Gertie teaches E.T. how to speak, and Elliot gets home and notices that E.T. has been collecting electronic devices and wonders why, and E.T. gives that famous line, E.T. phone home. And we see more of the symbiotic relationship between E.T. and Elliot as Michael tells Elliot, E.T. doesn't look too good anymore. And he doesn't, for some reason, and I'm not sure we ever know why. E.T. does look sick. He's coughing more. He's having more difficulty breathing. He's slower moving. So Michael looks in and tells Elliot, E.T. doesn't look too good anymore. But Elliot responds to Michael, we're fine. And Michael says, what's all this we stuff? Elliot is no longer speaking of I, but he refers to himself as we, him and E.T. There's some kind of strange connectedness here. 
we see that the people who are looking for ET, they're listening to this conversation. They drive around in a van with some kind of listening device to hear what people are saying and they, as they continue to look for ET. Then Elliot cuts his finger and ET heals the cut. Another miracle. And we see that throughout the Gospels with Jesus. That he heals people who have some kind of physical ailment, whether it's blindness or being deaf or, or being paralyzed. All these different kinds of things. Jesus is is fixing them. Jesus is healing them. And he's doing that in a miraculous way. So E.T. miraculously fixes a cut on Elliot's finger just as Jesus miraculously heals people. Then Elliot and his siblings go out for Halloween and they put a sheet over E.T. to make him a ghost and marry the mom thinks that it's Gertie under the sheet. And I started to get annoyed at just how obnoxiously oblivious Mary is. There's about 15 times she should have noticed that there's an alien living in her house by now, but she never does. And that's that just a, a phrase I wrote down. She is obnoxiously oblivious. But also while they're trick-or-treating, I thought this was funny. E.T. sees someone dressed as Yoda and waddles after him saying, home. Home, home, home. I guess E.T. wants to follow Yoda home. Maybe um, maybe he knows where Yoda really lives. I don't know. But Elliot is taking E.T. somewhere. I presume, I assume it's where E.T.'s spaceship landed in the clearing in the forest. And here, of course, is where we have that famous scene where E.T. makes Elliot's bike fly. And they go in front of the moon as they are flying on the bike. Uh, yet another miracle. Bikes don't fly even though that would be pretty cool if they did and they go into the woods and they set up uh this device that uh, et has been working on so that he can phone home but it's getting late and elliot is coughing apparently becoming sicker and he falls asleep in the woods and elliot wakes up and he looks very sick does not look well and et is nowhere to be found so elliot goes home and then elliot tells michael that et is in the woods and michael goes to look for E.T., he evades a car that is following him. He, he manages to get away on his bicycle and he eventually finds a very, very, very bad looking E.T. in a creek. And then he takes E.T. back to his house. And finally, Mary meets the little alien. And E.T., he, he is very, very pale white in color and he looks terrible. And Elliot says, we're sick. I think we're dying. What is this relationship and why is it like this? Back to the book Faith and Film by Brian P. Stone. And he writes that Elliot develops a kind of internal spiritual bond with E.T. such that what happens to one happens to the other. But I'm not so sure about that. To me, it only seems that E.T. is affecting Elliot and that Elliot is not affecting E.T., a lot of things that happen to E.T. happen to Elliot, but what is there that happens to Elliot that then goes and happens to E.T.? It seems like whatever is happening to this alien happens to Elliot. So the alien gets drunk, Elliot gets drunk. The alien is not feeling well, Elliot's not feeling well. I don't know, to me it doesn't seem to be a two-way street, and while it's this is an interesting yet confusing part of the movie it's not how things work in real life, right? We do not form spiritual connections with each other. Not in the way that E.T. and Elliot do. It just doesn't happen. We can feel a connection and a closeness with people, but not in the way that, that Elliot is spiritually and even physically linked with E.T. And we're never given an explanation for this in the movie. It just happens. Why or how, we do not know. What does it mean? 
We're never given an indication, and that was frustrating to me, that we never know why exactly are these two linked? Why exactly does there seem to be some kind of symbiotic relationship happening here? I don't know. But Stone writes in his book that the reason E.T. gets sick is because of, quote, the spoiled atmosphere of California, end quote. I understand that assumption, but I'm not sure if it's ever outright stated that this is why E.T. gets sick. I get making that assumption, but I don't think the movie ever tells us this for certain. Of course, this raises the question of how we should take care of the earth, and we've talked about this before, but we should be good stewards. We should be good caretakers of the earth that God has given us, and we should make sure that the atmosphere is well, and that we're not pumping too much chemicals and different things in there that are affecting all this stuff. Like I, I think that those are good things that we should not be that we should be cautious of what we're doing and not be trying to regulate things in a way that we are not destroying this world. I think that's a good thing. But I think it's also a bit of an assumption, quite an assumption, to assume that it's the spoiled atmosphere of California that's making E.T. sick. I'm not sure we're ever given that, that indication. But then Elliot's mom takes him away from E.T. And as they are trying to leave the house, an astronaut walks in. Actually, several astronauts come into the house. Well, I suppose they're not necessarily astronauts, but they're dressed like astronauts. The men in these space suits, they take E.T. and literally hundreds of people set up some sort of contamination system at Elliot's house. They're testing the kids and asking a lot of questions. And then Michael explains to these people, well, before we get there, who are these people? We're never told exactly. My goodness, there's a lot in this movie that we're not told. But my assumption is that these people are from the government. And at one point, someone is called captain or sergeant or some kind of rank, giving the indication here that there's some military involvement with these people. There's also a lot of scientists and perhaps even some medical professionals that are there. And we just make the assumption that these are somehow people from the government and how they knew about E.T. or what was going on. Who knows? Something else were never explained. But Michael explains to them that Elliot doesn't think E.T.'s thoughts. He feels his feelings. And we hear that Elliot and E.T. are on an EKG, and it shows complete coherence and synchronization of brainwave activities between the two. I'm going to make a theological stretch here. But maybe this could be seen as an example of how we, as Christians, should be of one mind with Jesus. That we should be trying to think like Jesus, that we should have the same mindset of Jesus, the same attitude, the same thoughts, that we want to be like Jesus in what we do and what we think and what we say, and that we should be on the same wavelength with him, if you will. Now, I'm not sure this is a great analogy and really not sure if this is the point that's trying to be made here. I think that it's probably not, but it could be seen as maybe some kind of an example of that, of trying to be on the same the, the, the same page as somebody else, trying to actually be like somebody else and trying to take on that same mindset, that same attitude, and to do that in that way. I don't know. I, I don't want to stretch things too far. But as Christians, we sure, certainly want to be in tune with Jesus. We want to have his same mindset. We want to have his same attitudes. We want to have his same thoughts. We want to have his same actions. We want to be in tune with Jesus just as Elliot is in tune with E.T. So I think that might be a bit of a stretch, but it's just something that came to mind. And 
thought it was worth mentioning because we do want to be of one mindset, to have the same mindset as Jesus. Well, Elliot and E.T. are in quarantine and the scientists are trying to save E.T. And this was surprising to me. I'm I'm not sure that it's fair to say that the establishment hunts down E.T. They are tracking him, yes, but it certainly appears to me that whoever these people are, they don't want to bring E.T. harm. I think they're trying to save the alien. I think they're trying to make sure that he's okay. I think they're trying to make sure that he's going to live. But E.T. and Elliot's synchronization starts to break down. Whatever it was and however it was held together to begin with, we don't know, but it's, it's breaking. And Elliot asks E.T. to stay. And as E.T. is dying, Elliot starts to feel better. And then Michael sees the flowers that E.T. is brought back to life and they are now dead. And E.T. dies. And this, we uh, also see another way that he is like Jesus because Jesus died. In Matthew 27, verses 45 through 50, we read this. From noon until three in the afternoon, the whole earth was dark. At about three, Jesus cried out with a loud shout, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? After hearing him, some standing there said, he's calling Elijah. One of them ran over and took a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a pole and offered it to Jesus to drink. But the rest of them said, let's see if Elijah will come and save him. Again, Jesus cried out with a loud shout. Then he died. Jesus dies. It's not that Jesus fainted or that he was wounded and passed out. No, he dies. He stops breathing. Fully, completely dead. But why does Jesus die? Well, in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 through 27, well, well, Jesus dies because he's crucified. Right? That's the cause of Jesus' death. Jesus dies because, because he goes through that process of crucifixion, and that is what kills him. But why, what, theologically speaking, why does Jesus die? Why does Jesus have to die from a theological perspective? In Hebrews 7, verses 26 through 27, we, we read this. It's appropriate for us to have this kind of high priest, holy, innocent, and corrupt, separate from sinners, and raised high above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day like the other high priests for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. He he died, he did this once for all when he offered himself. He did this once for all when he offered himself. Jesus offers himself in the place of where there are supposed to be sacrifices. So there are sacrifices in the Old Testament. Those sacrifices are given so that people can be forgiven of their sins. But Jesus comes and offers himself as a sacrifice. Because we are told that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The wages of sin are death. The penalty for sin. When, when you sin, what that means is that, is that something dies, is that there's death. That's what sin gives. That's what sin brings is death. So something needs to die. There needs to be the shedding of blood because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And Hebrews 9, 24 through 28 says this. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself 
now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So Jesus, through, through his sacrifice, through the shedding of his blood, he takes our sin upon himself and is that perfect sacrifice. He takes our place. He takes our sin and dies where we were supposed to die. That's why Jesus dies, because he takes your sin upon him. He becomes the perfect sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice that dies for the sins of all. So that the sin, so that anyone can have their sins forgiven because of the sacrifice and death of Jesus. In the movie, when E.T. dies, the doctors try to bring him back to life. They try to save him. They seem to have genuine care of this little alien. There's no fear of the other in the authorities, which is a little surprising to me that we usually see that within sci-fi, but not something, so it's not something we always expect, but. Because we always think that there has to be a bad guy, right? But who is the bad guy in E.T.? I don't know. I don't think you can say it's the people who have come and put E.T. in quarantine. They seem to have a genuine care for the alien. I don't think you can look at them and say they are the bad guy in E.T. I'm not sure E.T. has a bad guy because they are genuinely concerned about the welfare of this alien. So they try to bring E.T. back once he dies, but they cannot. And Gertie asks, is he dead? And her mom says, yeah, I think so. And then Gertie says, I wish you would come back. And Mary says, I wish to. Then E.T. is put into some kind of cryogenic freezer. And the scientists, they ask Elliot if he wants to spend some time with E.T. alone for one last time. So, so again, they're, they're being nice here. They're, they seem to be concerned for everyone who is here. So I... I don't know. I, I think calling them the establishment that's hunting down E.T. Is, is a bit much. But Elliot does. He, he spends time with E.T. And Elliot looks at, looks at E.T. and says, look at what they've done to you. But who is they? It's not this group from the government that's hurt or killed E.T. They were trying to save him. So I'm like, what are you? what is Elliot talking about? Look what they've done to you. Look what who's done to him. Now they've frozen E.T. and they do probably want to go examine the body and do some kind of experiments and stuff like that. Like, okay, it's an alien. If that were real, like I would understand why they would want to do that, but they haven't killed him. They're not responsible for his death, but they probably are going to do some tests now. So look what they've done to you. Like, who is they and what are you talking about? But then Elliot says, you must be dead because I don't know how to feel. I don't feel anything anymore. So the link that Elliot and E.T. had is broken. And then Elliot tells E.T., I love you. Then E.T.'s chest lights up, but Elliot doesn't notice and walks away. But as he's walking away, the flowers start to come back to life. And Elliot runs over and E.T. E.T. is saying, uh, E.T. phone home, E.T. phone home, E.T. phone home. And he's just saying that over and over again. And Elliot screams in joy. 
And here we have yet another parallel to Jesus and E.T., a resurrection. But what is it that resurrects E.T.? Is it Elliot telling him, I love you? Is that what resurrects E.T.? Is it, is it love that resurrects E.T.? We're not told. Again, another thing we're not told. But, but there's some speculation that can be given there that E.T. is not brought back to life until Elliot says, I love you. And then all of a sudden, E.T.'s back to life. So is it love that resurrects E.T.? And if it is love, then why, what is it? He resurrected in the first place because Elliot's loved him. He just hasn't said that. And then once E.T.'s resurrected, he's no longer pale. He's no longer sick. He looks fine. So like, what is changed? Why, why is he, what's, if the California, um, all right, I'm going down. Okay. Weird rabbit hole trail here. I'm trying to think this out here. This just dawned on me. Literally, I'm, I usually have notes I stick to pretty well. But this just dawned on me. Like, if it's the California atmosphere that's making E.T. sick, why is he not getting sick again after he's resurrected? Man, there's a lot of questions I have now. All right. I'll try to get back in uh, to, to the resurrection, though. <laughs> a parallel between E.T. and Jesus is the resurrection. Because three days after Jesus dies, he comes back to life. In Luke 24, verses 1 through 8, we read this. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the woman took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. When they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the woman bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember he told you while he was remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. Death cannot hold Jesus. He is risen. All of the Christian faith relies on Jesus being resurrected. It is that important. It is that significant. Actually, I would say there are five things the Christian faith relies on when it comes to Jesus. That's his birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. That those are the things that that make Jesus the Savior, the, the way that he was born, the perfect life that he lived, dying for our sins, being resurrected because death could not contain him. And he has victory over death, but then also ascending into heaven. Um, because we see other people resurrected in the Bible, but they had die again. Jesus doesn't die again. He ascends into heaven where he is still living uh, today. So when we look at these things, that, but, but really it all rests on the resurrection. If Jesus is not resurrected from the dead, we, we just need to stop meeting. We as Christians, we as a church, if Jesus is not resurrected, then we're done. It's that significant. It's that important. Jesus was dead fully dead, and then comes back to life, fully life. And E.T., like Jesus, is resurrected. Then Elliot tells Michael, E.T. is alive, and they hatch a plan to get E.T. out of quarantine and back to the forest so he can get back to his spaceship. They end up stealing uh, the van that E.T. is being transported in, and Michael's uh, Dungeons and Dragons friends help him. They explain what's going on, and they need to get E.T. to his spaceship. 
Uh, this was really funny to me. So, so they're explaining to his Dungeons and Dragons friends what's going on. And they say, we need to get E.T. to a spaceship so he can, can get back home with his friends and with his family. And one of Michael's friends says something like, can't they just beam him up? And Elliot replies, this is reality, Greg. And I thought that was pretty funny. The, probably the, one of the funniest lines of the movie. Can't they just beam him back up? And Elliot just can't believe you would say something like that. This is reality, Greg. Uh, really funny to me. Um, I don't know. It, it got me. I thought it was good. But eventually, E.T. and Michael and his friends, they're riding their bikes, and Elliot has E.T. in his basket on his bike, and they're trapped, or so it would seem. And then all their bikes elevate, and they fly away to the forest, to E.T.'s ship. And the ship is there, and it appears to me that E.T. invites Elliot to come with him. Come, I think is what E.T. says, and Elliot looks to E.T. and says, Stay but neither can do what the other asks. E.T.'s finger lights up and he touches Elliot's head and says, I'll be right here. And it seems that even though E.T. is leaving, he is not leaving Elliot alone. That's another way that E.T. is similar to Jesus because when Jesus leaves earth, he also tells tells his disciples that he will not leave us alone. In John 14, verses 15 through 21, we read this. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Jesus doesn't leave us alone. He sends one to be with us. We have the Holy Spirit that Jesus sends who is with us. Elliot says bye to E.T., and E.T. goes home. And Elliot stays home. In his book that we have discussed many times, uh, Brian P. Stone writes about E.T. being a Christ figure, about E.T. being a Christ figure, and he writes this, that E.T. ascends into the heavens as his earthling friends look upward, gazing into the sky. If E.T. is ascending into the heavens, that is a parallel to Jesus. Because in Acts 1, verses 7 through 11, we read this. And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way. You have seen him go into heaven. So Jesus ascends into heaven, but I'm not sure you can call what E.T. does ascending. He is flying in a spaceship. He is lifting off the ground. That's quite a bit different than Jesus' ascent. E.T.'s descent to earth and ascent 
away from earth is a lot different than Jesus's descent and ascent. But perhaps there are some parallels in some kind of a way there, as they both do have a descent and an ascent, but they're quite different. So everyone is looking up at E.T.'s spaceship, and that's it. Roll credits. End of movie. And there we have it for E.T. with the topics divorce, accepting all into God's family, humility, miracles, and E.T. as a Christ figure, as well as more topics all discussed on this episode. And while researching for this episode, I found it interesting how many articles and how many writings there are about how E.T. is a Christ figure and how the film has Christian religious themes. But about this, the director Steven Spielberg said, If I ever went to my mother and said, Mom, I've made this movie that's a Christian parable, what do you think she'd say? She has a kosher restaurant on Pico and Doni in Los Angeles. So is this intentional or not? Is who wrote the film and who is different than who directed it? So, so what was the writer meaning for some of these religious themes to come through and Spielberg just didn't know this? Or is Spielberg just making a joke? I, I don't know. But I find it interesting how if Spielberg is not intentionally making religious parallels in this movie, they still come through. Because there is something about the truth of the story of Jesus that draws people into making stories that parallel his life, even if they do that unintentionally. And that is because the story of Jesus is the greatest story ever known. And it is a true story. It is a true account of Jesus and the best story we ever know. The best story that can ever be told. There's nothing greater than the story of Jesus, and it is a true story, something that really happened. So in fiction, we see often people paralleling Jesus because the story of Jesus is so compelling, it's so impactful, it's so real, it's so true, that we can search for, for truth even in such simple tales as these. Even when people don't mean to, they point to Jesus. And we look at these stories and they point, we look at these stories and they point to the story, right? We read this quote from Robert K. Johnson earlier, that, that these stories, small s, point to the story, big s. So we can look at these stories that point to the story of Jesus, even if they are done on it, even if it's done unintentionally, it still comes through because Jesus is so compelling, so real. And we look at this and we all, we, we all want a savior. We all want a hero. We all want someone to be there for us. And Jesus is there for us. A real, true story. The greatest story we could ever know. So I find it really interesting there that even when people don't intentionally make parallels to Jesus, it's still there. There's still parallels there, even if it's not done intentionally. So what do you think? Was this done intentionally? Was this not done intentionally? Do you think that the writer and Spielberg just weren't on the same page with that? Or was Spielberg making a joke with that quote? I, I don't know. But whether it was done intentionally or not, certainly we see that there is some parallels and that E.T. is in some ways a Christ figure. Well, thanks for listening. I would love to hear what you think about this episode and all the other episodes. So you can reach me uh, at theologyandsci-fi at gmail.com or you can follow on social media at Theology and Sci-Fi on Instagram or Twitter or you can like Theology and Sci-Fi, the podcast on Facebook. I hope to hear from you and ask that you would tell someone about this podcast. Let's try to spread 
the word about this podcast and let some other people know, I would greatly appreciate that. And often as I do towards the end of the episode, I like to kind of let you know where we're going next. So the next episode, we will be looking at Ursula K. Le Guin's book titled The Left Hand of Darkness. So for the next episode, which will be released on March 28th, we'll be looking at Ursula K. Le Guin's book, The Left Hand of Darkness. Again, this is a pretty popular book. So the last episode that we did before this one with A Choice of Gods by Clifford D. Simak was kind of the deep cut of the season, kind of something that a lot of people aren't familiar with. There's a lot of people who are very familiar and have written a lot about the themes within Ursula K. Le Guin's book, The Left Hand of Darkness. And there's some topics in there that are going to be interesting and perhaps difficult for us to tackle and to look at. But that's where we'll be going next. So uh, it's it's a book that's worth reading. It's a book that I enjoy. So that's where we're going. Looking at um, uh, the, we're going to look at a female author too, which I'm excited about to be able to see that and to see what she writes and what the plethora of theological themes are in the next episode, The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin. And this has been the shortest episode, I do believe, of Theology and Sci-Fi. The next episode's probably not going to be. It's a longer book and there's a lot to tackle within it, but we will do it and we'll get through that together. So I look forward to spending that time with you. Thanks for listening here today. And is there anything I missed about E.T.? Is there something that stands out to you? Is there something you have questions about? Is there something that um, any concerns or something that I missed or something to point out? I would love to hear from you and any of your thoughts and whatever they may be. And as always, thank you for listening. Please tell a friend. And as you're reading books or watching TV shows or movies, whatever it may be, keep an eye out for those theological themes within it that you can have conversations with about your friends and family as a way of opening those doors to share with them who Jesus Christ is so they can enter into relationship with him. Thanks for listening. For Theology and Sci-Fi, I am Derek V. Trout. It's the man from the moon, but I think you killed them already.